Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, Editor-at-Large for LARB, and I'm joined today by my co-host, another Editor-at-Large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're going to listen to an interview that I did with Nick Pinkerton about his new book-length essay about the film Goodbye, Dragon Inn, which is also the name of the book. And um, that is a movie by Sai Ming Liang from 2003 mm-hmm. uh, that is set in Taipei in a movie theater during a single screening on the last night of the theater's existence. So in a way, it really relates to the sad news that we all received a couple of days ago prior to taping this, which is that the arc light in Los Angeles is closing permanently. Very sad. All Arclight and Pacific theaters, which I was reading 300 theaters total Mm -hmm. in Southern California, are closing. And it includes the Cinerama Dome. Who knows? Really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, I had mixed feelings about Arclight because I felt like it um, diluted some of the power of the Cinerama Dome. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's wrong, and actually, maybe it ended up bringing more people to the Cimarama Dome. I don't know. There was something like a little bit like the Grove in Los Angeles. If anyone knows about that, like building another, like kind of corporate space next to this older, um, more landmark space. I, I guess I just had some issues with that, but it doesn't matter. Movie theaters are great. I haven't seen a movie in in a theater in um, over a year, and less movie theaters is not a good thing, in my opinion. And that's actually a lot of what I talk about with Nick. And um, the news broke on the day we did the interview. So it was a very um, unhappy coincidence that his his book is really in praise of the public space of movie theaters. Yeah, I miss that communal space a lot. And I'll tell you one memorable moment that I had in the Cinerama Dome where I saw the James Baldwin documentary, um, I Am Not Your Negro, a couple of years ago. And then um, I saw one of the Backstreet Boys afterwards talking about how moving it was. And I just thought, this is fantastic. This is a fantastic experience. And we can't have that kind of experience inside our homes. I will miss it a lot. Wow, that's really quite LA. That's a very LA story with the Backstreet Boy at the James Baldwin doc. Yeah, I, I don't think the Cinerama Dome is, although I was reading it could be, it could be uh, torn down. I don't think it will be. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it's probably an opportunity for Amazon to extend their empire. But um, right. I, I, Call I, Amazon will help you out. <laughs> unfortunately, but I think we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. Nick and I do also talk a little bit about what could possibly be done to counteract um, some of the streaming wars and isolation Mm. of content. So I'm not without hope yet. Good. Well, I'm excited to listen to this conversation. Great. Let's get to it. I'm happy to be speaking with the film critic Nick Pinkerton today. Nick's work appears regularly in publications such as Art Forum, Four Columns, The Guardian, Film Comment, and The Baffler, among many others. And he's the author of the monograph Mondo Cinema and Beyond, 1960 through 1980. He joins me to discuss his latest book, Goodbye Dragon Inn, a study of Simon Liang's film of the same title published by Fireflies Press. 
The book is the first in the Decadence series by Fireflies, which revisits seminal films of the aughts and will include other titles by some of my other favorite film writers besides Nick, such as Melissa Anderson on David Lynch's Inland Empire and Erica Balsam on James Bending's film Ten Skies. Fitting for our current moment of still shuttered and rapidly closing movie theaters, Goodbye Dragon Inn, both the film and the book, are eulogies to the communal nature of cinema that still leave room for the ghosts of the medium's past. Tsai Ling Miang's film takes place on the last night of the Fu Ho Grand Movie Theater in Taipei before its imminent closure during a single revival screening of a 1967 film by King Hu called Dragon Inn. The screening is an occasion for some major cruising, for the theater workers to do their last bit of cleaning up, and for two of Dragon Inn's stars to see themselves writ large on screen, perhaps for the last time, because as one of them says to the other, even then, no one comes to the movies anymore. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you very much, Kate. Glad to be here. So maybe you could start by just telling me a little bit more about this film and why you chose it out of so many other possibilities for your entry in the series. Among other things, because it not only, I think, is a film rich enough and deep enough and strong enough to stand up to a book-length study in and of itself. There's enough to dig into there, but also it seemed to me to be a film that understood that there was a fundamental change underway in how we interact with films and in theatrical movie-going culture well ahead of most people's grasp of this and articulated many things to do with this. So it opens up onto a lot of ancillary lines of discussion. I mean, the short answer, I suppose, would be it seemed like there was enough there and that proved, I think, to be the case. Yeah, and when did you first see it? I saw it on its initial theatrical run in the U.S. and, in fact, wrote about it for the online journal Reverse Shot when I was but a cub critic. And in point of fact, did cannibalize a few passages from that review because upon reviewing it, I felt, oh, I did a not entirely shameful job. Uh, so if I wrote it right the first time, I may as well just strip it for parts as needed. It's a quiet, you know, the pacing is very long and languorous and there's hardly any dialogue in the film. The shots are kind of wide and far back. It's an art film, you know, and it's beautiful. I wonder if you could talk about the way it was released in 2003, what you think might happen to a film like this now and how that kind of speaks to the discrepancy in the last two decades of, you know, theatrical releases for foreign films for art films like you write that your grandfather happened to go see it this yeah. year in Florida when it came out which seems you know like unlikely at this moment yeah I mean this is a thing that I have occasion to ruminate on at some length in the book is the fact that it really does seem to belong to another time in let's say art house film culture in the United States but some of the difficulties that such a film, I think, would have today being seen outside of a handful of cultural capitals, so-called, in the U.S. These are difficulties that Sai also has had at home, 
and he's hardly alone in that. His slightly older but near contemporary Edward Yang was always very vocal about his frustration about making films in Taiwan and getting those films to be seen by Taiwanese audiences. And I think you can really see in Tsai's career the degree to which there really isn't a place for a figure like Tsai, even in the art house circuit, such as it presently exists. And what, again, I think made this a very fortuitous choice was that Tsai himself is very articulate about these issues and in his ongoing practice is constantly thinking about how do we address this? How do we deal with a theatrical distribution system that does not really have a place for these handcrafted, small, intimate works, even if there is an audience, and he has consistently found an audience, how do you reach that audience when the traditional system of distribution is rigged against you terribly? So did the movie do well when it was initially released? I mean, relatively, and what did that mean at that time? And what do you think, maybe this would like stream on the Criterion channel now, but where do you think this movie would find an audience now? Yeah, now it's hard for me to say. I mean, Sai's last movie, Stray Dogs, to the best of my knowledge, had a sort of limited boutique run. And, you know, it's not as though at any point the man was setting the box office on fire or anything like that. But it was, I think, a significant success d'estime. And you did have a sense that film by film, there was something building. It is the sort of traditional arc that a filmmaker career has. The first theatrical picture, Rebels of the Neon God, in 1988. And then a slow refinement of style, I think you could say, that follows after this, where you're getting a more and more clearly articulated vision of cinema from a single filmmaker. But I don't want to make too great a claim to suggest that he was in 2003 straddling the world exactly, but it does seem to me the increasing marginalization of a filmmaker like Sai is indicative of something larger, a marginalization of cinema or at least a certain kind of cinema. Because I think some people would say, you know, oh, there's so much content, quote unquote, now, you know, there's more than ever. And I wonder if you see what you see is the connection between maybe like the loss of physical theaters and the explosion of content and what mm-hmm. that does to the cinema atmosphere and, you know, how that affects smaller, maybe more challenging films like size. For my money, this film in particular is a kind of film that I find difficult for home viewing because it is so pared down, because it is so languorous and it is very much about empty spaces as well as moments of brushed by intimacy. And for my money, I find that this sort of thing benefits enormously from the sensory deprivation quality of a darkened theater. 
Another instance, Bellatar's sprawling seven-hour Satan Tango, which was available streaming, I forget through whom, at some point over the last few months. And it's a movie I admire enormously, but to take in a occasionally punishing seven-hour film like that in the comfort of my living room is just not a practicable proposition. I need that lock-in quality that theatrical gives in order to really nail myself down and sink in for the long haul. And it's an interesting thing because I think at a certain point, and this is really an ongoing phenomenon, but I think at a certain point, the multiplex and you know the studio tentpole in their constant vying with content and streaming media for eyeballs decided that what cinema was was big, just extremely large, teeming, loud, these like juggernaut sort of experiences and invested heavily in these kind of experiences. And you can even go back to, you know, the initial inroads being made by television in the late 40s and early 1950s. And the response to that is CinemaScope, it's 3D, it's all of these sort of spectacular elements. But what is lost sight of is the small, the quiet, the intimate, the film in which is precisely anti-spectacular, which I think you could say to some degree is the case of Goodbye Dragon Inn. And this is a very valuable category of cinema to me. It's not the only category, but it's one that I place enormous importance on. And I think in the loss of cinema screens to this kind of film, they become a much more difficult proposition. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, you write that some people have argued that, you know, cinema is not dying, it's going to be reborn in its marginalization. But you got involved partly in films because they aren't a marginalized medium, because it's not poetry, it's not music, classical music, it's a popular medium. So I guess I was wondering, a film like this, if it was just relegated to like an art gallery or a smaller kind of venue, what do you think is lost in that form of marginalization? Well, you know, in point of fact, the important aspects for me are the fact that you are not in a totally controlled environment when seeing a film and the sort of chance elements that that introduces into the screening. Environment can certainly be important and put a stamp on the thing. But, you know, most of my multiplex movie going experiences aren't like incredibly like sensual uh, architectural experiences or anything like that. And Psy puts a great deal of faith in the sort of white box gallery or some variation thereof as a bulwark for this kind of non-commercial filmmaking practice. And, you know, in part that's been played out in his career. He has managed to, well, perhaps losing some cinemas, not all, to find a way by hook and by crook to continue creating closer and closer relationships with galleries and museums around the world. And I'm not entirely... 
against that because it does retain those basic elements. That is to say, you're not in a totally controlled environment, i.e. your uh, apartment home. And it does have that sensory deprivation quality and that lock-in quality. At one and the same time, it's very hard for me to look at the world of gallery art as presently constituted and think, you know, just wholesale, this is a great model to emulate. This art world model where you're selling exclusively to like 200 of the worst people in the entire world and are dependent upon literal like vampire kajillionaires living in the UAE for your revenue streams and catering to their whims. It's hard for me to get super turned on by uh, by that. Nor do I think that that's what Sai is proposing, but I do have some compunctions about the gallery as being a potential savior for the medium or, let's say, more challenging sorts of films. I mean, something that's really interesting in the film is that the audience, some people are pretty wrapped in watching the film, but other people, like I mentioned in the introduction, are kind of looking for other things besides cinema, and they're trying to hook up. You know, there's a lot of hapless cruising in the movie of people who are meeting in this theater for other reasons. Yeah, and I think part of the charm of the film, if I may say so, is that it doesn't give short shrift to that. It recognizes that that's actually also an important way of utilizing that space, these kind of extra cinematic elements. The you know, what we can vaguely call like the erotics of film going, all of which, again, is contingent on this being shared social space with possibilities and disappointments abounding in that space. You know, it is very much, I think, a eulogy for a kind of popular film culture of the director's youth, specifically the popular film culture of we can broadly call greater China. But it is also a very tender address to the act of cruising and to the random encounter in a myriad of forms. And no, it doesn't pay off at all. But it is, I think, uh, very, very tender about this as well. You write that size film can help us answer the question of what cinema is and his work in general. And that that is now, you know, especially over the last year, I think with so many or all movie theaters shuttered and not a possibility and, you know, just everything through the medium of the personal screen, the question of what is film when films aren't even made on film anymore. And when television also has become long form in a different way. And when Music videos are, when you mentioned Beyonce's Lemonade, like, is that a film? It's all harder to discriminate now, which is which. So I, I'm curious how you think his work helps answer the question of what cinema is. Yeah, I mean, this particular issue is one that I've been turning over in my head and writing about for some time. Some years back, I wrote for Sight and Sound a piece, I think, called The Great Leveling, where I was reckoning with exactly this. Like, when we were watching, serial television and music videos and all manner of content and films on the same device, how do we articulate between these different sort of categories of experience? And part of it, I think, of my takeaway from the last year has been, oh, that like theatrical experience 
which of course has always been a through line in my entire adult life, even well before that, it's really, 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 really quite vital <laughs> to the medium. And this idea that you can do away with that entirely and still have it be quite the same thing, I don't think actually tracks. Only through this long absence of any theatrical cinema going has the absolute importance of it been made clear to me. But I think what's really very at the fore in Goodbye Dragon Inn, and this is something I jabber on about a good bit in the book, is the fact that in point of fact, theatrical film going, it makes film into a site-specific medium. And your film going experience is then not only the experience of the film, which of course you could have on a LED screen at home or on whatever pad device you have, but it's then encrusted with all of these different details of the experience, these extra cinematic details, which become part of the film. You know, I will remember until my dying day going to see Rush Hour at a discount theater in Hamilton, Ohio. And there is a scene where $100 bills are being like counted by one of those automatic bill counters. And somebody in the audience just screamed, cream, cash, get the money. I will never, ever forget that. That is a part of that film now to me. And I can, you know, think of dozens upon hundreds upon thousands of instances of this. And I think that is something that is very well articulated by Goodbye Dragon Inn is the film is the film, yes, and it's enormously important, but there is this entire extra cinematic element that really is part of how things exist in our memories. And I've watched you know hundreds upon hundreds of films at home over the last year, and I don't really have equivalent experiences like that because I'm watching in a totally controlled environment. And, you know, my cat walking over my lap just did not quite have the you know same impact and does not color and flavor the experience in quite the same way. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Nick Pinkerton, author of Goodbye Dragon Inn, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We are lucky to be speaking with Sam Cohen today. Sam Cohen is a writer and her debut collection of short stories, Sarah Land, is out from Grand Central Publishing. And Sam's here to recommend a book. What book are you going to recommend, Sam? I'm going to recommend The Faggots and Their Friends Between Revolutions by Larry Mitchell. Huh. Okay. I feel like I've heard of this book, but I don't know. I don't know anything. Tell me about it. Yeah. So it was actually just reissued, I think, last year or this year, sometime during the pandemic. But it's a book from 1977 that's almost a book of fables about the world and being queer within the world, but also just being a person who lives within a system of violence. And I've never read anything quite like it. It almost reminds me of like children's fables or Bible stories, but it retells, 
It starts with the line, it's been a long time since the last revolutions and the faggots and their friends are still not free. And in the last revolutions in this book, the men without color, as they're named in the book, took over and everyone else has to work in service of building their empire. And then there are all of these bits of wisdom and little parables for how to live and find connection and joy and sex and play and beauty as we wait for the conditions to be right to fight for the next revolution. So the revolution um, is not a part of the of the book. It's just alluded to as this thing that people are kind of biding their time waiting for. Or? Both biding their time waiting for and trying to enact, but it's sort of recognizing that the time of the last revolution was before our recorded history, right? So it's forming sort of an origin point for that and saying that there are times where it's the right time to fight and those times happen, right? And then there are other times throughout our history that we've been just sort of waiting and how do we live? How do we find connection? How do we love each other? Um, How do we maintain who we are? And, And the world of the book is called Ramrod. And so it's like this funny sort of metaphor for violent patriarchy. Yeah, there's no revolution in the book, but there are sort of communities like, I'm sorry, I'm going to just trigger warning, use the F slur. I already have, but I will continue to because it's hard not to in this book, though the word faggot becomes really powerful in this book as identifying another way of being, a way of being that has to do with gentleness and love and beauty. And so there isn't revolution in the book, but there are communities of faggots who live together and their friends, the strong women who also live together in these communities. And there are sort of different different households of like bears or masseuses or like witchy people and like forming community within this very violent patriarchal world, even as they have to kind of go to their jobs as empire builders. And so it's very much a metaphor for our world. It's interesting to me that it was published not very long after Stonewall. So gay liberation really had kicked off and started, but in this fictive world, it's it's still not here. I think that there is some battling in this fictive world too, right? Like there are small battles. I guess if you think about like a huge war, um, there are some battles that are already underway. And then there are, you know, some people that come out triumphant and some people that come out harmed. But I think that the revolution that the book is talking about is more than gay liberation, but something sort of bigger than what maybe any of us individually can even imagine a world that is no longer about empire building, that's no longer about hierarchy. And so, yeah, I think in the book, gay liberation is sort of underway, but I think there's also sort of this sense of expansive history, that this is something that happens in spurts, but isn't going to happen as a huge whole all at once. How did you find this book? How did I find this book? I mean, honestly, I think just through the publicity that happened around it being republished, the intros to the book are by Tourmaline and Morgan Basichis, um, who are both queer trans artists that I guess have a lot of visibility right now. So, so I mean, yeah, I think the book made a little bit of a splash on its relaunch and it's just like the cover is so gorgeous. The name was so appealing to me. And so I think I immediately went and got it when it was available. I'm curious if 
this book played any role at all in, in your stories, which are set not all within this world, some within future worlds, some with, within biblical, retold biblical worlds. Um, were you inspired by, by this book when you were writing yours? Yeah, so I think I actually, this was one of the first books that I read after I sent in the final manuscript version of my book. And I think it articulated something about my goals as a writer to myself and like why I believe so much in breaking down language to the most simple forms. Um, So I do kind of a similar thing in my book where I have a mother nature figure and a God figure, the same way that this book has like the faggots and the strong women and the men without color and these sort of named groups. And I have mother and nature and God to represent. Basically, I have a story where they, where God really vanquishes mother nature. And there is sort of an opportunity for the world to be made in a way that's not about nation building, but that's about like love and connection and connection to the planet and, you know, thriving in harmony with the planet, which I feel like sounds cheesy as I'm saying it, but obviously instead we're collectively killing our planet. Um, And so it's kind of going back to the origin to say this could have been otherwise, but there was this war where God vanquished mother nature. And I think that Larry Mitchell is doing something really similar here where he's saying, you know, what seems natural and what seems perpetual since the beginning of time actually could have been otherwise. And it just really made me believe in the power of that kind of fable language of telling a new origin. Amazing. Can you tell us the title of the book again and its author? The Faggots and Their Friends Between Revolutions by Larry Mitchell. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you, Kate. That was Sam Cohen. Her new book of stories is called Sarah Land. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Nick Pinkerton, author of Goodbye Dragon Inn. Just today, actually, it was announced here in California that Arclight Cinema is yeah. closing every one of its theaters. That's the 300 screens across California. So, and Lemley's, I mean, here in California alone, you know, it's the the health and ecosystem of a movie theater seems really, you know, hanging by a thread. In general, you know, I think maybe the, the theater as this mid-range of a place where you can go, I mean, although there are these like, spectacular experiences and, and or like very, very fancy ways to see movies now and be served food and et cetera. You know, it's it's a medium priced activity and it's kind of like speaks to a larger ecosystem of mid-level, mid-range. And you you write that the kind of like a the abundance of mid-range budget films in a mid-range budget activity like going to the movies is a kind of determiner of the health of our pop cultural ecosystem. And I see it across the board, just also in terms of like, for instance, publications, you know, the New York times is, is thriving. um, But I don't know how many other smaller newspapers across the country are. I don't know how many other magazines are. um, And so these things that are more kind of in the middle um, seem to be really dwindling and it's scary, but I also wonder how, you know, that affects your job um, as a film critic and, and as a freelance writer. I mean, the whole thing seems so uh, delicately intertwined. 
Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the sort of the the dropout of the middle range, I think I'm in a not wholly terrible position right now by virtue of the fact that I've been kicking around for a little while and I have enough meager name recognition to kind of scrape by on the merits of my own byline. But I really don't know how one gets from A to B at this point because all of those intermediary steps for younger writers are kind of like drying up. You know, you don't have the the, the free weekly uh, or, uh, you know, these various other options to sort of build up a resume a little bit. And I, I, I like think a bit about A.J. Liebling wrote in the 50s sort of talking about the effect that television had had on boxing and the fact that you had like just a very few like well-established names who could land televised matches and then you had the like local neighborhood club fighters but all of the sort of middle range like intermediary steps had kind of like uh, disappeared apropos of the gussying up of the film going experience which has been an ongoing process you know it's just really fucking dispiriting because i don't know what activities you can enjoy if you are not a person of means anymore even going to see a baseball game has become increasingly a fraught undertaking with the you know luxury boxification and the nice uh, you know like kobe beef uh, burgers and the like import beer thing it's you can't go to a damn baseball game for 15 bucks and one sees this happening really across the board and it's it's extremely dispiriting and yes you know again like i did not sign up to be uh, sort of a commenter on this niche and elite media. Now, I know this film that we're talking about and many films like it are, uh, you know, far from being uh, sort of things that are populist propositions. But, you know, nevertheless, that it was this kind of casual, dirty-footed medium is so large a part of the initial appeal. And to uh, see that receding, I think, it's an intolerable loss that ought be resisted on every possible front as vociferously as possible for as long as possible. So have you experienced that um, in the last decade, for instance, in New York City, um, in terms of movie theaters, um, physical, actual theaters? And um, because I think you make an interesting connection in the book between cities and the cities themselves that the movie theaters are in and our experience of the city and how that might relate to a movie theater. So I'm, I'm curious in New York, you know, cause that's where you live, how, how you've seen this progress, let's say in the last decade. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There, there, there are a couple of different trends, I suppose you could call them. And I don't think necessarily developments have been all to the bad. I think Certainly, the emergence of kind of value-added cinema experiences, uh, you know, places that will have you know, a bar attached or have 
something else going on has functioned really to draw, um, I think, more younger people into specifically like repertory film going activity. And that simply can't be to the bad. And if those younger people, if they're a slightly more demographically diverse bunch than the like liver spotted octogenarians who I did most of my repertory film going with when I was in my 20s, that's not to the bad either. So, I mean, this, I think, is some cause for for feeling good about things. But concomitant to this, there are increasing ticket prices and assigned seating and all of these things that ever so slightly but significantly take it away from being a casual wandering off of the street sort of experience, which is something I enormously value. You know, you're not putting on your tuxedo and your pince-nez to uh, go to go to the Met uh, opera. You're uh, taking a quick glimpse at what's playing. You're making a snap decision and you're rolling in. And this is something sort of particular about film as opposed to live theater or whatever else. And I should like, if at all possible, to preserve it. Now, I know also that there are terrible pressures financially faced by anybody who is trying to keep a repertory film house or a small art house afloat. And I don't begrudge anybody for anything that uh, they may have to uh, do in order to pursue that. But I don't know. These are, I suppose some of the issues that I see arising. And where do you see streaming and the, you know, what's the will, do you think, of um, the the companies themselves? You know, what do you, what do you think they, especially now as Amazon and Netflix have moved into, um, to, to kind of being in-house with everything that they can mm-hmm. make their own movies and then stream them. What do you think that, you know, companies care about movie theaters? Well, I mean, that that's, I think, a sort of company-by-company company question. Five years ago, let's say, Netflix's Reed Hastings was very forthright about viewing movie theaters as competition, so much so that made no plans for theatrical for any Netflix thing. Amazon took a somewhat different tack, and Amazon Studios films would have theatrical runs. Uh, Netflix has subsequently walked that back a little and sort of a developing issue, let's say. There are some who foresee that after this massive wave of closures, which have already begun and more certainly inevitable, uh, after everybody was left fucking twisting in the wind for a year, that Amazon's, Netflix's, et cetera, will sweep in and the Arclight, for example, will have that, you know, little Amazon smirk outside of it soon. You know, yet to be seen, uh, I would not find this a particularly exciting development because I hate these companies and, <laughs> well, that's it. And and just since I know theaters in New York have been open for a little while, uh, have you been going back to the theaters? Yeah, I mean, there's not been a hell of a lot to see. I've sallied forth a couple of times, and things are starting to pick up ever so slightly. So I intend to continue continue making the rounds. Uh, if anything tempts, I would uh, 
I would be interested to see who would win in a fight versus King Kong and Godzilla, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and how about in Taipei and um, in Taiwan in general, where where Sai is from? What um, what's the state of you know in person cinema there? And I mean across China, I know so many films now are made here to appeal to international audiences. Um, what what would you say is the kind of health of at least like Taiwanese film? Of Taiwanese film, I have to say I'm not probably very qualified to speak to the contemporary scene. I mean, I know they were not shellacked by uh, COVID in anything like the uh, the way that uh, we and many other countries were, and I presume they've been chugging along. As you know, uh, things are a bit contentious between mainland and uh, and uh, Taiwan, so I don't think they're getting a great deal of uh, mainland product in. But I mean, this too is something that I think Goodbye Dragon Inn is really addressed to is several developments in local cinema-going practice and a sort of drought period being experienced by the local film industry tied in with several different things. The rise of the popularity of MTV, uh, sort of video cafes, um, the rise of the popularity of pirate channels, the falling out of the bottom of the Hong Kong industry, which was connected in turn to Hollywood, beginning really with Jurassic Park in 93, making major inroads and Hong Kong, which up to that point had staved off Hollywood infiltration for some time. But I mean, if you look at film listings and you know any of the Taipei 16 screeners, You'll have a handful of local products, you'll have a handful of Bollywood films, and you'll have quite a number of Hollywood films, and that's about how it breaks down. If somehow it was up to you, (laughs) um, and you, do you have any ideas of, of how to keep film culture healthier in the states at least i mean uh is that anything you think of like is there a commission would you what would you suggest like what are the options and just the and the middle range in particular it would is it all basically an economic proposition or i mean part of it something i always find myself banging on about is the existence of i think perfectly useful models in the history of how film culture developed and was perpetuated in these United States and other countries around the world, which is essentially as a activity fueled by amateur ardor, by university film clubs, cine clubs. And that seems to me at the very least to be a workable or worthwhile model to study. I mean, my dream is that we come out of this whole Michigas and you see a thousand film clubs bloom across the United States and that we don't have a film culture that is concentrated so densely in a handful of culture-rich cities and that we could enjoy something nearer to that. And I know that... uh, my my formative aesthetic experiences were as like a you know midwest hardcore show attendee 
And I think that that still like heavily covers it, colors everything. And, you know, one of these sort of monomaniacally repeated themes and a lot of this music, it's all about like bringing it back. We're going to bring back the spirit of 88. And, you know, was the spirit of 88 ever that good? I'm not even sure. Um, but I think that does heavily uh, infest my way of thinking about things, which is like, perhaps, is it possible we can move forward by moving backwards a little bit, or at least like looking at what we've done in the past and trying to pursue new ventures along these lines? And it's maybe wholly fucking delusional. I don't know. But um, this like concurrent with, a real sense of institutional delegitimization, which I think a lot of people have experienced over the last year, gives me a sense that the best possible avenue is to pursue things along the lines of amateur enthusiasm and amateur ardor, you know, that uh, I don't I don't wish to see you know, the institutions reduced to rubble or anything like that. They are very useful and capable of taking on projects that you know a handful of bozos cannot. I like the existence of museum archives. I like the existence of legacy publications, or at least some of them. Um, but for my part, I I think like most of my commitments at this point lie in that sort of amateur direction. <laughs> well, that sounds like a a hopeful path, and um, so I signed it down. Noted hope. Yeah, well, you know, just try not to blow my damn brains in. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe watch a movie. Oh, yeah, I absolutely Dead. will. These things yeah. are great. 2002's <laughs> Fear.com last night. Oh. The, what is that? Uh, it's a movie about how the uh, internet is bad. And, <laughs> <laughs> and broadcasts wickedness. Cool. Well, Nick, thank you so much for talking with me today. My very great pleasure. That was Nick Pinkerton. His new book is Goodbye Dragon Inn. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.